Hey guys, you've got Bill Austin here from Daniel Energy Partners. We are just back from our Telluride Executive Series. It was our first ever, and we had Mark Mills there to speak for the keynote. We wanted to release his uh, his keynote speech here via podcast, but we wanted to give it a shot and see how it sounded. With that, I'll give a little bit of an intro to Mark, and then I'll have him take it away from there. Mark is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. He co-directs an institute on manufacturing science and innovation. He's also the co-founder and strategic partner with Montrose Lane, an energy tech venture fund based here in Houston. Mark's an accomplished author. His articles have been published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and other publications. He's had two very recent book reviews in the Wall Street Journal, and he actually has a book coming out here in October, so please go out and take a look for it. With that, I'm going to let Mark take it away. I hope that you guys enjoy this podcast, and please take a look at some of our other stuff out there. Thanks. The John Stewart thing is still in the bio because that, when I talk to millennials, that gives me creds. You know? <laughs> some of, the Gen Zs don't know who the hell he is, but the millennials still know so I'm hoping, he, he had me on my last book tour, which has been a while. When, when the, the book that I co-authored with my old friend, Peter Huber, The Bottomless Well came out, we did the circuit, you know, pimping our book and all that stuff, but Stewart's, uh, this has had nothing to do with my talk, actually does. So John Stewart invited me on, and my wife and kids, especially my kids, said, don't do it, because he's just gonna destroy you, because that was, you know, what they do to conservatives on that show, and, um, Anyway, you got to do what you got to do. It, it was, um, it was the, not only the best interview I've ever done for a book. I mean that in every sense of words. It was fun. It was interesting. Uh, he read the book. So I don't expect people to read books I write when you do the book tour. That's not the deal, right? They, they look at the title. Their staff tells them what questions they're going to ask, and they just... Stuart read it. You can tell they've read the book. And he asked, asked very good questions. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it was... In the green, hosts never come to the green room. If you've all done TV, there's a green room where you wait until they get called on. And when they do live things, they don't. They want spontaneity, so they don't. The host never comes to see you. I'm in the green room waiting, and he walks in. I said, "What are you doing here?" And because I was surprised, he said, "It's my show. I'm allowed to be here." What are you? He said, uh, "I said, well, um, he said I'm going to have a lot of. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm glad you came." Uh, I thought he was just being nice because I was being brave. And I said, uh, yeah, I, I heard your show's really hot. Said, oh, oh. Uh, I read your book. Do, have you uh, ever watched my show? And I said, well, well it is. <laughs> Probably not much. So we're going to have fun. <laughs> it was great. I'm hoping he's got a new podcast. I'm hoping he'll uh, invite me back for my new book. I have a book coming out in October. So I'm taping here. October 5th. Uh, which uh, is already at Amazon, you can find it. But it's not about energy mainly. It's, there's a few chapters in energy. It's about technology. And I'll talk about that maybe a bit this morning. So I'm going to talk about forecasting. My, book, my next book is about forecasting. Because forecasting is uh, what we all do, personally, what businesses do, what, what professional forecasters do. But, you know, it's in our nature. We try to guess the future. That's uh, what finance firms do. Politicians claim they do, their staff, CBO claims it does. Everybody's a forecaster. It's, you know, it's one of these great disciplines where there's, there are no standards of any kind. And if you're wrong, serially, it has nothing to do in the general public sphere with whether or not you're, 
well-paid or popular vectors. I, I decided there's a taxonomy for forecasters. There's three kinds. And this, you may have heard this taxonomy before, but I, I've been reading forecasts I have, for most of my life. I have shelves full of books going back decades of forecasts of all kinds. On energy, I have all the energy forecasts that were made from 1970, I guess 74, roughly, today on my, on my shelves. So resources for the future forecasts, the for, you know, foundation forecasts, um, the National Geographic only ever, ever special issue they ever issued was in 1979 on energy and forecasts. Forecasts, three kinds. There's, there's forecasters um, who essentially are entertainers. And they're selling, they're selling books. They, they, they just want to get paid for speeches about forecasts. The futurists, you know, there's a whole coterie of forecasters. Who are, they're basically entertainers. They, they have a nice story, and, and it might, might sound credible, but it has nothing to do with being right. It's just they're entertainers. And then there are forecasters who, uh, who are paid to be right. Uh, you don't usually hear of them. They normally work for firms. Sometimes they work for finance firms. Or for, but that, that's their job. They're paid to be right, and there's often consequences when they're wrong. They, they lose money. That usually gets your attention in most businesses, except I'll stipulate in Congress. But that's that's a, you know, that's the way governments work. And the third class of forecasters are those who have an agenda. They're 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 pushing a story. That's either they're pushing their company story, so that's a form of kleptocracy. But it's okay. All all you know, everybody has a something to sell, so to speak. But they may be an ideological forecast. So in the energy world, we can sort of see the for. What I've just said to you will make sense in terms of the forecast about energy, where the world's going, do we need oil in the future, is oil a dead industry, are, are, you, are you working for, and this is the, the story that's being, being uh, peddled by a lot of energy forecasters and tech forecasters, if you invest in the oil and gas business and public equities, Exxon, we'll pick Exxon, that's like investing in Sears right around 2001 or two. And if you check Sears stock price, by the way, that was pretty much the peak year for their price. They were trading, I think, then at 180 a share or something. I forget the exact 140 a share. And, um, and what you're being told is, don't panic. But don't, you're not a buyer. You're a seller. You know, sell it, you know, we're talking to long fund forecast investors. Get out of it in an early way, but don't, you're not a buyer. Even if Sears looks like it's getting cheap, don't, you know, if you buy it 20 years early, you've made money. Time to get out. What you want to be buying is Amazon, because it's the tech of the future. That would have been a good trade to make. So today, you know, obviously Tesla is the Amazon or pick your green stock or whatever the wind, solar, battery, SPAC is, the electric vehicle SPAC, that's your Amazon today and all the, all the pioneers and the Exxons and Chevrons, they're, they're, they're obviously Sears. That's the story. Uh, and we saw that story epitomized in the IEA's newest uh, roadmap. You all, Dallas all saw it. They issued a roadmap, and it's, uh, the distillation of the roadmap is, is delicious, as we have Fadi Baral saying, to achieve that aspirational roadmap. So now we're talking about not a, somebody's paid to be right, but to tell a story. Right? Fathi is not an entertainer. You've probably seen him talk. He's not, he's not paid to be an entertainer. He's a nice guy. He's very smart. Uh, he's, he's paid to tell a story and an aspiration. In that story, he said, the world needs to stop now, you all heard this, right? Exploring for oil and gas. Not in the future, now. Okay. Did you all notice two weeks later, the Norwegian Energy Minister, what, 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 what they said? The Norwegian Energy Ministry, two weeks after that statement, a report came out, 
uh, had to make a decision about the future of, uh, no longer called stat oil, of course, but whatever. Uh, were they going to continue to explore for oil, drill oil, and lease, lease oil acreage? Remember, Norway is the, the, the pinnacle of the virtue of the post-oil era with the highest percentage of electric vehicles on its roads in the world. And they said, we're going to keep drilling for oil. The world's going to be using oil for a long time. Okay, so that comes from a, a country, of course, where they're, I think the EV penetration is now 70 or 80% of cars on the road. But bear in mind, though, um, Norway has 5 million people. Houston has, last I checked, 7. Houston, never mind the world. And Norway has, it's located in a part of the world where nobody goes. Uh, they don't drive a lot. It's a country the size of, I don't know, maybe a tenth the size of the Permian, something like that. It's, and uh, they have hydrodynamics. But that epitomizes the two, the two forecasts that we, we live in. It's the energy transition that the EIEA says is not only essential, but the trope is it's inevitable. So what I want to do is, is tell you uh, why there is no energy transition. And not from an aspirational perspective. I'm, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a physicist by training. I, I, I like technology. I worked in, I worked in semiconductors. And, Missile guidance and lasers. I have patents when I did real work. So I, I, I like technology and I believe in innovation. And I think there is actually an acceleration in innovation going on, but not the ones that you're being told. So they, to, to illustrate what's wrong with this uh, a trope that most of the world's accepted, and they're only debating about, you know, is the how much do we spend on the transition? And a lot of people in oil business believe there's a transition underway, that we don't need a lot of oil in the future, oil's going away. So often I use slides to, to do the graphs and show you, but let me, what I'm going to do instead is give you six numbers that will tell you why there isn't a transition, and there won't be a transition, and in time frames that have any meaning, just six numbers. The numbers are going to be the number um, 25, uh, so this, this is not, you're not going to be tested on this afterwards, but I'll tell you what the numbers are. The number 25, the number 100, the number 20, the number 50, the number 12,000, and the number zero. Six numbers. So we'll start with the number 25. This is the forecast by IEA uh, that the world in 2050 will have 25% of all energy supplied by renewables. So we're at 12, 14% today, depending how you And, and they, they see a world in 30 years that will be 25% renewable. So let me just pose this question. The world was 25% renewable uh, roughly 1950. Okay, so we're going to go back to 25% renewable by 2050. Is that an accelerating transition? I mean, where is this? This is an accelerating transition, an inevitable accelerating phenomenon that's changing the world. Just set aside whether the 25% will happen. On the face of it, the rhetoric, the words in my world have a meaning. They don't in, in, in the rhetoric of politics or aspirations for energy, but that's not an accelerating transition. It's not a transition. More importantly, that 25% is anchored in almost all of the growth in non-oil, non-hydrocarbons, in wind and solar. Almost all of it's wind and solar. It's 80% wind and solar growth. And, so, and to get to the 2050, not only do you have to have an increase in wind and solar, it's astonishing, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but they also assume that the world in 2050 will use 20% less energy in absolute terms. So we're going to have a world that's bigger and wealthier, that uses 20% less 
less energy then than it does today because of the you know, magic of efficiency and government mandates and government fiats and aspirations. And all of this is based on not plans that are proffered by any government, not the Paris pledges. These are just hand-waving pledges. You know, things like, we'll ban electric cars in 2030. Uh, all these hand-waving pledges get you to that 25%. I'll just go on record, happy to take, you know, I would take it, not gonna happen, but you just have to know what underlies the 25%. Deep aspirations and assumptions about a reversal in underlying phenomenology of history that has never happened in the history of humanity. The one way you can reduce energy demand in absolute terms, we found in 2020, shut the world down. Wow, it cuts energy use. That's called a depression. Or you can have a war. That often cuts energy use, because you know, they kill people and they can't go places. Okay, But between killing people deliberately or unintentionally, energy use goes up. Has for, I don't know, 10,000 years. The second number is 100. This is, uh, by that I mean 100 million barrels of oil per day equivalent. So the world now is moving back towards something in that range of actual oil. But here's what that 100 means. If you were a forecaster or an analyst or a better, you would, you, you'd hedge your bet. You'd be on both sides of the bet. I mean, that's what, I worked for a hedge fund for a while. It was a great education. So what's the hedge? Uh, the hedge would be, does the world actually deliver the aspiration, the plan, not the plans, the pledges. Never mind the plans. You know that nobody is delivering on the Paris promises. There's just, there's a calibration. If you haven't followed this, you can find it on the magic Google machine. Uh, only two countries have met the Paris promises. And there are, they, the, the US has beat the Paris promise because we promised and we didn't promise and we promised, you know, whatever. So you take the US out of the picture because we, we beat the promise by virtue of, uh, you obviously know, the shale revolution. We replaced coal with gas because it was cheaper, not because anybody ordered it. But other than that, only Morocco and Gambia are doing what they promised when they signed the Paris Accord. The IEA forecasts are doubling down on the Paris Accord. So it's not the Paris Accord, it's the Paris Accord times five in terms of what must happen. So the number 100 is this. What happens if in decade from now, only half of the aspirations happen? So half of what IEA says must happen, doesn't. Well, two things we would know. If half of what IEA says must happen, does happen, it will represent an astonishing uh, absolute growth in the manufacturing of wind, solar, batteries, and electric cars. It would, it will, there'll be not, you know, it's not 10% per year growth. These are, these are growth that are off the chart. Several thousand percent growth in those industries to get to half their plan. Okay, good place to make a bet. A lot of people are making bets there. Where does, where does the shortfall come from, though? The other half, it'll be hydrocarbons. So if the half of the aspiration doesn't happen, it's a 100 million barrel per day oil equivalent increase in energy needs from hydrocarbons over today. So just divide that into the three markets, which is sort of how it divides out, roughly. That would get you 30 million barrels per day more oil than, than is produced today. 30 million. I just say it's a pretty big number uh, on top of where we are. It would get you a coal demand equal to adding Australia's total production. Australia's the world's biggest coal producer and exporter. It would get you a net increase in total natural gas production of, of, a, of a cutter. Cutter is the biggest gas producer 
exporter. U.S. is the biggest producer, absolute, but they don't use much in Qatar because there's no people there, so they export it all. So that, I'd say the, if I were betting, I'd bet on the 100 million barrels per day happening because the world's going to grow. The next number is the number 20. 20 is an inch, I, 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 have two, I have two 20s. So I bury two factoids in the 20, in the 20 number. The first is uh, 20%. If the icon of the transition, the Tesla, and all of its progeny, all the electric cars in the world, if the trajectory follows what the aspirants want, not the crazy Bloomberg New Energy Finance forecast of 300 million EVs, but the IEA forecast of 500 million EVs. The world today has 10 million if you put your finger on the scale and count plug-in hybrids. If you count pure battery cars, it's 7 million. But take, we'll take the 10. And we're gonna go to 500 million vehicles of that class on the world's roads in the next uh, two decades for the aspiration. That would be meaningful in a lot of ways, but it would only reduce world oil demand by 20%. I say only. If we took 20% out of the market today, prices you know, just go back to negative numbers like they did for 24 hours in March. I mean, this is be an epic destruction of demand. 20% is a lot in the oil world. But it's 20% of today's demand. The, the demand for oil 20 years from now, just for aviation, goes up somewhere like seven to 10 million barrels per day. Forget petrochemical products, which IEA forecasts are not replaceable by magic unobtainium. That gets you another five to 10 million barrels per day. So essentially, the world with 500 million cars destroys 20% of oil demand from today, but has no net impact in 20 years. With 500 million EVs, which not, it's not theoretically impossible. I'm just saying the growth rates have never happened in an industrial infrastructure for cars like that, ever. Maybe it happened. There's no new phenomenology, it's just cars with a big battery. The other 20 is we're gonna have lots, of, lots more batteries to solve the problem of this acceleration of wind and solar. So if the United States, and I'll just focus on the United States because this is where we're spending a lot more money than Europe or going to spend. If the United States increases its spending on subsidized and even mandated grid scale batteries. So we're now adding to the battery domain, not just what's in cars, but on grids. We increase that by 10,000%. We install capacity of batteries goes up 10,000% in the next uh, 15 years. That will get the United States 20 minutes of grid scale storage. 20 minutes. So just so you know, last year we had the fastest increase in grid scale batteries, went up 180%. We currently have 20 seconds of grid scale storage on the, on the grid. So in the, in the magic future world of wind and solar, we don't need hydrocarbons. You have to store electricity. They figured that out. Texas noticed that. So what a surprise. This is what you want to know in these time frames. How, how long do you have to have extra electricity or generating capacity available for the nation? Now we're talking about the nation. We're talking about turning off all the hydrocarbon plants in these goofy visions and using batteries to, to, to mediate wind and solar. Okay, how, how, many, how many minutes or hours would you like to have to keep the lights on and air conditioning running all the time in America without using hydrocarbons? Well, what you would do is you'd look at meteorological data, not climate models looking forward, of how often in the last 20 or 30 years has the entire United States continent been becalmed and under cloud cover simultaneously. No wind and no sun for how long? Well, that's no, zero electricity essentially. That's happened in the last 30 years about a dozen times, maybe more. So 
for more than a day. So that's 24 hours. We're going to have 20 minutes of grid scale storage. This is not, this, this just, this is, these are just crazy numbers. Okay, so 20. Now we're going to move to the uh, next number. So I did, you, you, saw, you, you saw my 25, my 100, my 20, now 50. 50 is the quantity of materials, 50 million tons per day, that the world will mine to service just electric cars. Now, forget the grid scale batteries, which double or triple the numbers, I'm going to tell you. Just for electric cars, for the aspirations of switching the world over to electric cars. Well, let's just assume that's what happens. So the world today, measured in tons, which is how the IE likes to measure it. We like, I like measuring in barrels. I just can visualize it. Hard to visualize a ton of oil. Uh, the world uh, produces and uses 5 million tons per day of oil to move cars. A lot of, it's a lot of oil. Uh, we're going to need 50 million tons per day of mining minerals, processing ores to make enough batteries to replace that 5 million tons. In the environmental world, in the economics world, in the world of physics and machines, the physical quantity of stuff matters. En energy costs and environmental impacts begin and essentially end with the physical quantity of stuff that you have to extract from the earth, the amount of land you disrupt, and how much you have to move around. All the energy costs are associated with that, too, because you, you can't get stuff out of the earth without using energy-consuming machines. You can't move it. You can't process it. So the physical quantities of stuff is sort of the first-order measure. So it's 50 million tons. In fact, if you do, if you do the, the math and take the green vision to the world, and you look at the total tonnage of all stuff that humanity extracts from the earth and processes to survive, which is biomass, food and non-foods biomasses, uh, Industrial construction materials, gravel, concrete, that, that class. Metals and fuels, those are the four things. There's nothing else. Okay, the world moves, processes roughly 100 billion tons a year, 100 gigatons for society. If we go the green path, we'll have to process that much just for the energy. So the world today moves about 10 to 15 billion tons per year of fuels, oil, gas, coal. We're going to have to move 100 billion tons per year of stuff to replace the 15 billion. That's because green machines are inherently material intensive, which is what another terrific IEA report said that I wrote about, you may have seen my column. I think I was the only human being in the world that wrote about that report and read it. It's 218 change pages. Uh, if you skip the abstract at the front, which sort of ignores the, the substance of the report, which is, you know, whoever the mouth breather who wrote the abstract that excuse me for the, being mean to, you know, shouldn't say that. Whoever wrote the abstract didn't read the report, I'll just say that. So if really, it's a really good report. What, what it says is what I've been writing and saying for years. I worked for a mining company early in my career in Canada. Uh, I like mines, I like mining. Uh, roughly 10 times, or if you put it in percentage terms, because that's what matters at growth rates, 1,000%, right? 10 is 1,000. Roughly 1,000% more materials are required to be mined from the earth to produce a unit of energy or a mile of driving if you go the battery wind route than if you go the oil or natural gas route. So you increase the physical quantity of materials tenfold to produce exactly the same quantity of energy service to society. It's, it's, a, it's a, a switch from liquids and gases, fundamentally, to solids. It's a doable switch. I mean, it's not technically impossible. It just involves epically huge quantities of material. That's because these, the, the 
green stuff is inherently low energy density. It just is. So building wind turbines involves at least 10 times more physical tons of materials mined and processed moved to get the same kilowatt hour as using a natural gas turbine. And that's for onshore wind turbines. For offshore wind turbines, you double that again. So it's 20x or 2,000% physically more materials processed and moved. Which incidentally, and not, or not incidentally, means at the end of the life cycle of the machines that wear out, you have that much more waste than you would have. Physical waste that you have to decommission, get rid of. So I'll put, let me just give you a sense back to the velocity question when the first number, um, we're talking about mass and waste. But mass and masses of stuff and weight of things matter. I mean, as a young physicist, one of the things you've learned, in fact, you learn in high school physics, most people probably had to take it of our age. I don't know if anybody has to take it anymore. But mass weight calculations actually matter. Airplanes fly because you get the mass weight ratios right. I mean, if you don't, they just don't take off. So that's why there won't be any battery powered planes, which I'll we'll talk about in a minute. I mean, big planes. So if you think about what's going on, we have the world today where we have this extremely energy dense, low material intensity hydrocarbon path. And the, 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 the lowest intensity is in oil and gas. Coal is not as, is not as, is, is not as material efficient, obviously. Uh, the world today pr produces wind and solar measured in oil terms equal to about 3 million barrels per day of oil equivalent. And the IEA forecast and all the aspirations say that by 2050, or 2040 actually, so in 20 years, we're going to get to, in oil terms, uh, 83 million barrels of oil equivalent per day for wind and solar. So we're going to go from 3 to 80. Set aside the money. Just, just, just put the money aside. That means you're, you're, you have to build equipment. Okay, we just, you have to build hardware. So the first thing I'm, I look for, I worked in construction as a kid, uh, going through college, I built stuff. Uh, you build stuff, you, you know, backhoes, drugs, concrete. Um, okay, the oil industry built stuff too. To, to, so how long did it take the oil industry to go from three million to 80 million barrels? It took 50 years, 50 years. They're saying we're gonna do three to 80 in 20 years. Okay, it's pretty heavy lift, no pun intended. Um, and they're going to do it using 10 times more material per barrel of oil equivalent. So we're going to do it two and a half times faster with 10 times more material in the constru in construction programs. I'll go on record as saying, not going to happen. Just, just not. I take the bet. Not going to happen. Uh, it doesn't matter how fast we accelerate, how much money you throw at. There aren't the physical, there aren't enough backhoes in the world to be built. This is art. And in fact, I'll add to this what IEA doesn't model on the oil side. If you, once you start going down that path, you do need to do more mining. So the green path has an increase in mining demand that is greater than any in human history. We increase the call on a whole variety of minerals, not rare earths, between 300% and 7,000% in 20 years. If you're a miner, that's pretty good. Uh, but what's, what is the world actually doing? Uh, it's not increasing the supply of any of those minerals by that. And in fact, copper demand, which will have to go up 300%, electric car uses 300% more copper than internal combustion engine. Electric stuff uses more copper. Uh, the world's copper supply is in decline, including mines planned and under construction. Meanwhile, just as a factoid, the last survey of coal mines, if you didn't know this, I didn't know this until I saw it, got no publicity. The current plans and under construction coal mines will bring online two billion tons production more per year. That's three times US current production. It's coming online in the next five, six years, world coal, mostly in Asia, some in Australia. So these are, these are epic. So now, anyway, that's the 20%. We're, we're talking about 20, 20 seconds to 20 minutes of storage 
uh, with these crazy plans, and we're going to kill 20% of today's, today's oil demand if Elon Musk's uh, business actually becomes worth more than GM, Toyota, and Ford combined. Okay, could happen, I guess. I don't think so, but it doesn't, doesn't, it's not an existential threat for oil. I mean, that's, the point is, even if I give you all that, you have not eliminated the need for oil. In fact, in the IEA's crazy aspirational plans in the year 2050, the world is still using more oil than it did in 1973, when the oil embargo took the, you know, so we won't make any oil in their vision because we'll kill the, sh the shale industry and domestic on offshore. And so the Saudis and the Russians will still be doing it, obviously. They'll be supplying it just like they were in 73. And maybe they'll have some fun again. I don't know, right? Like they did in 73, 74. All right, the next number after that is 12,000. So 12,000 is the watt hours, which is an energy measure. You could make it in ergs or barrels of oil equipment. But in the battery world, we use watt hours because batteries produce watt hours. They don't produce barrels of oil. But the weird thing about energy is that units don't have any meaning. They can all switch between each other. And so in the energy world, people pretend that a pound of gold is the same as a pound of sawdust, is the same as a pound of wheat, is the same as a pound, because it, you can measure them all in pounds. So in energy, ergs, BTUs, barrels, they're all measured. But there's actually a qualitative difference between a pound of gold and a pound of water. There's a, quantitative, there's a qualitative difference between a unit of energy that's produced from a laser, let's say, or an electrogenerating plant, and a unit of energy produced by burning wood or coal. It's called entropy, but not to go down that, that rat hole. So let's just do the 12,000 watt hours per kilogram. That's the energy content of oil, petroleum. That's the, that's the geophysical, that's the, that's the physical chemistry energy content of oil. Now, if you think a pound of oil, how many watt hours per kilogram, back to kilograms, I named the extra some pounds in the British system because I grew up in Canada and in America, and so I grew up with the British units and slugs and then in newtons and then kilometers and meters. So excuse me if I oscillate between metric and, uh, and non-metric. So 12,000 watt hours, watt hours per kilogram. Uh, today's uh, best batteries, as installed in a Tesla, about 200 watt hours per kilogram. 200. So you say, ah, you haven't counted the engines. Okay, I'm looking at the fuel source. It turns out that an internal combustion engine and the electric motors are within a factor of 50% the same weight. And they're, yes, they weigh something. So the electric, mo the, the internal combustion engine and a high performance, you know, uh, uh, whether it's naturally aspirated or fuel ejected, uh, you know, 200 horsepower, 300 horsepower internal combustion engine weighs roughly 350 pounds of, of really inexpensive, low energy intensity steel, typically. Some of them. And the electric motors in a high performance car weigh about 250, 300 pounds. But the fuel tank to take your car 300 miles all in with the fuel in it weighs 70 pounds. The fuel tank in an electric car weighs 1,000 pounds. 1,000 pounds, 70 pounds. Everything else in the car is the same. That's the battery problem in a nutshell, right? And they say, oh, the batteries will get better. Yes, they will. They've been getting better, but they can't get better than the physics limits or the chemistry limits, or both, the physical chemistry limits, of the lithiated atoms of which you're using. They can't get better than that. So what's that number? Well, that number is not 200. Obviously, it's higher. Uh, you have to build a system, but let's ignore the system. The limits, some, depending on the, 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 chem, the chemical goos you use, uh, you could get batteries that go up to 400 or 500 watt hours per kilogram. That would be pretty good. And they do exist today, by the way. There are batteries that are operate at that level. They're extremely expensive. They're very dangerous. But if you're using them for missiles, what, you, know, you don't care because you're, you're blowing stuff up anyway. And you have highly trained people to man manage them. 
But that's the, that's the best you could get in theory versus 12,000. So a few hundred, 12,000. Batteries can't get to 12,000 in the universe we live in ever. So I, I, I use this number because of the constant, repetitive, uh, intellectually uh, vapid trope that the energy tech is accelerating at a silicon tech Moore's Law rate. No, it's not. And no, it can't ever in this universe we live in. Information scales in the opposite direction of energy. Information is esoteric, representing a zero or a one is, is, is a, a mathematical concept. And I can chase down lower and lower quantities of energy to represent the zero or the one. That is Moore's Law. You make transistors smaller. My first job was, in, in fact, in a transistor factory. My first patent was in designing processes that make microprocessors. It was obvious to everybody, I can date myself, that was 1973, so it was the dawn of LSI. I, I actually worked on vacuum tubes as a kid repairing TVs. They did have some transistors, but mostly it was vacuum tubes then. You could tell that if you want to get faster computers, you had to take the energy out of the operation. That meant making them smaller. They didn't make them, they didn't make them smaller because they wanted them smaller. Nobody cared if IBM mainframe was half the size of this room twice the size of this room, third the size of the room. What you wanted was faster. Faster may take an energy out, you take energy up and make things smaller. The analog to that in the physical world would be Star Trek. If I wanted to get you from here to Asia on an airplane, the most energy efficient way to do that is to take, well, I don't know, some of your atoms away. Because you weigh, I'll just pick a number, 150 pounds. Uh, it's much more energy efficient to move up 15 pounds or one pound. So we'll just decompose you. Uh, into information and send you over there and reassemble you. It's not going to happen in the world we live in. There's no physics for that. They don't scale the same way. They're silly, they're silly statements. Uh, they, the idea that, oh, well, you have the IMF actually writing that nobody believed they write that the world would transition from landlines to, to cellular lines or that the internet would take off. And that's what's happening, I'm paraphrasing, and that's what's happening in the energy world. Well, first of all, they're wrong. Everybody believed that it would transition. I was in that industry. I tell you, there, was not, there was nobody saying, this is not going to happen. There might have been some uh, media types thinking that wasn't going to happen. Nobody making those things didn't think that was going to happen. That's why we were making them. Because that's why we knew the power of fiber optics. I was on a team that put the first fiber optic cable in. And, you, know, they, we, you knew why you were doing this. You knew this was revolutionary. You could see the future. It was right in your hands. So that, that trope is wrong. The second one is the transition is not the same. We're talking about scaling up. We're talking about 500 million cars, which require 1,000 pound batteries. Each battery requires 500,000 pounds of materials to be dug up and mined. And that quantity increases in the future, doesn't go down, because the ore grades that we're chasing are going down, not up. And we use trucks, and we use mines, and we use electricity produced off-grid, bio-oil. The IEA doesn't model the oil used by mining. Global mining today uses as much oil as global aviation did in January 1, 2020. Let's, let's double global mining uh, and see what happens to oil use there. No one models that because nobody believes global mining is going to double in 10 years. The miners don't because they're not, they're not financing the mines. That's not happening. All right, so then let's go to the uh, last number, which is the number zero. Zero is, uh, there was a, remember, uh, the song in the 60s, there's zero, anyway, digress. Rusty Brazil were here, he would know, because he always has 
old songs than for each of their, their weekly, the daily columns. So zero is, the, uh, is one not only possible, in my opinion, likely outcome on the net change in carbon dioxide emissions in a world where we use hundreds of millions of EVs. Why do I say that? This is not a political statement. This is just, if you, if you look at the facts, at what we build EVs with, batteries and battery materials, the energy debt in making the battery is a number that is uh, knowable but not predictable. Knowable in the sense we know, what, we know how to figure out what it is. We can't predict what it actually will be because the processes are opaque, disparate, secret, uh, or behind corporate veils or national border walls because of where these things happen, which I'll explain. So we actually have a, a potential outcome as we go, yes, you know, from 10 million to 200 million EVs will increase the world's carbon dioxide emissions. And since the stated purpose of the EV is not because it's a better car, there are some people who like it because it's a better car. Okay, fine. That's not why people are buying it. And, and everybody knows that. And none of the national plans that ban internal combustion engines are predicated on the car being safer for you or more fun to drive. They don't care. Governments really don't want you to have fun. So that's not the, the metric. It's not because it's more convenient. It's actually less convenient. And it's not because it's cheaper. It's actually more expensive. And it will stay more expensive, by the way. How do I know that? Well, there's the rights, you know, the rights laws. You increase more of something, you get slightly cheaper. True. And that's happening with batteries. But where are the commodities geniuses? When we're, we're increasing the call on commodities by 300 to 3,000% or 7,000%, 70% of the cost of the battery is the commodities. 70%, not 7%, 70%. So 60 to 70% of the cost of batteries, commodities, which are already commodities, not technology. We're talking about copper, and we're talking about manganese, we're talking about nickel, we're talking about cobalt, we're talking about things that are already mined at scale. We're going to increase the call on those in a few years by hundreds of thousands of a percent, and oh, the price of those commodities is going to go down, apparently. I'm trying to think about, I want the economists who are saying this, who are babbling about the, you know, the economies of scale, to give me one example in all of history. And we have data going back to the time of the Egyptian pharaohs. So if you've never read a book called The Great, the Great Wave by economist at Yale, the one piece of data that we have more knowledge about over more time and more granularity than anything else is the price of stuff. The price of stuff is so important to humanity. There's so many records of the price of stuff. We know what people paid for labor in 1000 BC. We know what paper cost in 250 BC. We know what, we know what food, we know this. There's no time in history where you increase the call of commodities where the price collapses. So it's nutty, but set that aside. Let's just pretend that it doesn't change by waving the wand, which governments can do. They can do price controls, which have another effect. But they can say you can't increase the price of the commodity, and apparently people will keep you know, manufacturing stuff at a loss like Elon Musk forever. That's the, that's the model. You've got a car that everybody knows you have to plug in, so the, the usual attack is while well, you're, you're using coal uh, to charge the electric car. Well, yeah, it's true. Statistically, 40% of the world's electricity is coal-fired. All right, 20% in America. And since electrons are fungible, this depends, it obviously depends on what time of the day you plug it in and where. It matters down to the zip code and the minute what electrons you're actually using, what the call on real energy is. But you could figure that out. Here's the beauty of the grid. We monitor it, we measure it, we regulate it. And so I could, in theory, not let you charge your car except when it had 
clean electrons available, which I've already stipulated aren't clean because we're mining more material, but we're going to ignore that. When a wind farm is running or a nuclear plant is running, you can in theory do that. Okay, fine, but that's not what the real world's like and that doesn't add a lot of convenience to a car. So in the real world of the next decade, the grid is what we have over the next two decades. and It'll change a little bit, but it's not going to change by a whole lot. We'll have more wind and solar. We'll have a lot more gas. They'll still be using a lot of coal. The world has 300 gigawatts of coal plant under construction. 300 gigawatts. The U.S. still has 200 gigawatts of coal plants. The world's adding 300. Planned and under construction. Breaking ground, not that maybe we'll build them. That's less than it was planning 20, 20 years ago, but it's still, still a lot of coal plants. So you'd have to know the time of day and the geography, which you can model. So the, some, some honest analysts have recently been doing this, including the IEA, God bless them on this one, and the uh, International Clean Transportation Council. And they have studies, which you could find, I found, and they, they map out the, the obvious. What do we think the carbon dioxide burden debt is of an electric vehicle when it shows up in your driveway? Well, they actually don't know exactly because they don't know exactly where the materials were mined. They don't know the exact ore grade for that material, which de determines by a factor of as much as five how much oil you use to get the stuff out of the ground because it depends on the overburden, how deep the rock is, how much ore you take out. You know, copper ore is at about 0.1% grade now. You could do the math. That means one pound of copper is a, a half a ton of rock you have to move. Uh, average car contains 60 pounds of copper, so do the arithmetic, a lot of tons. Does it, where was a copper mine? Well, the future mines have more or lower or higher grade ores. They're all lower grade ores, which means more energy in the future, not less per pound of copper going to the car. You could do all that, but if you took a snapshot today, the range is that in energy terms, to make a battery, enough batteries to hold the energy equivalent of 100 barrels of oil, sorry, to hold one barrel of oil energy equivalent. So if you want to hold a barrel of oil energy equivalent, one, in a battery, you have to consume the energy equal to 100 to 300 barrels of oil of energy. So batteries that hold a barrel of oil energy equivalent, measured in oil terms, require consuming energy, not charging the batteries, for the materials and materials processing and mining, between 100 and 300. Put it in carbon dioxide terms, that means when the half-ton EV battery shows up in your driveway, it has an energy debt it has to pay off uh, between 10 and 20 tons. Could be as low as seven tons, could be as much as 20, 25 tons of carbon dioxide have been emitted before it shows up, before you plug it in and drive it one, one mile or one kilometer. If you drive that vehicle in Norway, uh, and it's the, the mid to low end, cut CO2 emissions. 98% hydropower. They get about 2% of their electricity from coal from the arbitrage trade. If you drive that vehicle in Germany or England, this is from the ICCT study, it's roughly the same as, as an efficient internal combustion engine. No change. No change. If you assume the higher end of the, of the energy intensity of the batteries, which I assume for the future because I know two things that aren't changing in the next 20 years. The energetics of the energy conversion processes, the fuel used by the D9s, the energy in the chemical plants that do the refining, the grinding machines. Have you ever been to a mine site? Look how they grind rock. You have to grind rock up and melt it. You have to melt rock, dissolve it actually, to get the ore out, which takes lots of chemicals. Those chemical processes have been around for centuries. Uh, they're on their asymptote of energy efficiency. We know how much they're going to change in the next 10 or 20 years. So there aren't any variables there. The variables are ore grade. We know ore grades are going down, so energy costs per pound are going up. This is a long run trend. Uh, 
And we also know that the uh, energetics costs are not getting better. So we know that as a fact. And we know that that means the high end of the CO2 burden per car is going to trend up. So when you look at studies that say the IEA did this in their exact abstract, nonetheless, they write, after explaining some of this stuff, nonetheless, electric cars on average reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Having just said that in the future, copper ore grades are going down, lithium ore is slightly trending down, its grades, uh, manganese ore grades are trending rapidly down, nickel ore grades are trending down. Having said all that, and the energy intensity of the mineral extractions are going up, having said all that, they're saying that nonetheless, electric cars will lead to a net reduction in CO2 emissions. If you, if you use the assumptions they gave and did the calculation, you find out that you can have 20 to 30% more life cycle CO2 emissions from an EV than from driving an efficient internal combustion engine. More emissions, not a reduction. So that's why I say zero. I mean, if I were just guessing somewhere between the net 30% savings in some circumstances versus a 30% increase in CO2 emissions, in others, you'd say, oh, okay, well, I'll just split the difference, no change, which would, which you, which would lead you to say, okay, you can buy an electric car, I'm not going to punish you for it, because odds are it won't hurt the environment from, if I think CO2 is an issue. If you really wanted to cut CO2 emissions, you would do what I suggested in the Senate uh, last week in testimony. You would, you would give away money to people, and if you want to give a subsidy away, you give people subsidies based on dollars per barrels of oil or gallons of gasoline not used over the life cycle of the vehicle. And that would cause a huge amount of money to flow into more efficient internal combustion engines. It would be a far faster way to cut. If you want to cut hydrocarbon use, you can go from today's average internal combustion engine on, on the road to the best available, which is about a 50% cut. Internal combustion engines available today are about 50% better than the average on the road. I'm not proposing CAFE standards be ratcheted, by the way. I'm just saying that's, if you really want to give money away, that's where you give money away. So that, that constellation of facts would leave one sort of scratching your head, say, well, to me, you notice I haven't said anything about whether we have to solve the climate problem. I haven't besmirched uh, the desire to have more electric cars. I think electric cars, fine, they have a niche, there'll be more of them, it's great, whatever, you know, electric pickup trucks. If you drive it, you know, the grocery store, this is great, electric's fine. If you probably use it in the Permian, West Texas, it's probably not gonna be so convenient, um, especially if there's a power outage, just saying. It's a lot easier to store oil in a tank somewhere near the oil field than it is buying 50 tons of Tesla batteries to store, you know, the equivalent of a 20 gallons of, you know, whatever. So it's not gonna happen. So let me, let me end on one other bonus number, because, you know, six is a bad number, it's not a prime. I like prime numbers, I just, it's a thing. I, I, was gonna, I was majoring in math when I was in school. I liked math. I decided arithmetic is easier, so I dropped it to a minor. Math is hard, but prime numbers are cool. So I'll give you a seventh and last bonus number, which says a lot about the future of oil to me. And it's number one. And uh, this is, was that a Beatles song? One is the loneliest number? Anyway, the number one. Who, who did one is the loneliest number? Three Dog Night. Three Dog Night. Oh, I love Three Dog Night. Man. Anyway. It really betrays age here when you think about uh, these, doesn't it? Okay, the number one, uh, forecasters, economists are, are, are spectacular at making microeconomic forecasts and often right, and they're spectacularly and often wrong about macroeconomic forecasts. Uh, they just, their, their macro models don't hindcast properly. Uh, they just don't. Uh, but it's okay, they're always quoted. 
And so the economists are telling us what the GDP growth rate in America is going to be for the next 10 or 20 years. CBO is a typical sort of distillation of all of it. And the number after recovering from a pit is 1.9% again. We're going to be at 1.9% GDP growth for as far as the eye can see. I don't think so. My next book is basically taking that to task. I think we're going to see much higher growth because I see productivity coming back. Productivity growth rates go through cycles of innovation. The innovations have to be foundational. We haven't had any foundational changes in, in total factor productivity in 20, 30 years. So the new normalists are right. There has not been a foundational total factor productivity gain. Everything about wealth is about productivity. Everything. Uh, except for governments Sovietizing economies. So just, I'm just talking about the non-political parts. So what would happen though if we got a, a, a real productivity uh, inflection? Because the productivity inflections happen at discontinuities. They don't. They don't occur like a linear. Things change, if you like. Right. The, I'll use a simplistic example. The manufacturing mass production line of Henry Ford was a discontinuity in total factory productivity in making machines that people wanted to buy. Make them cheaper. People bought lots of them because they were useful. So if you imagine a future where there was another similar discontinuity and it was embraced, if GDP growth rate then grew by one percentage point more than forecast, so not a crazy number, 2.9, call it 3%, what would that mean? Well, just for the United States in 10 years, it would add almost $4 trillion to our GDP. But cumulatively over that time, it wouldn't be four. It would be a number more like seven. So, it's, so anyway, so but four trillion at the end of the decade, four trillion, four trillion dollars is a lot of money. Even even in this, and this is this is not tax money taken away from people. This is not printed money. It's not fake money. This is four trillion dollars of real wealth that's been added to the economy. What happens if you add four trillion dollars of wealth to the American economy? More than is now being forecast in a decade. People do stuff. They do more stuff. And so if you're a forecaster, what you do is. The, the, the easiest way to make forecasts that are correct, history shows, is if you look at behavioral things and what people do with technologies, by behavioral I mean the 10% of the demographic economic category of the future will do what the 1% do today, simplistically. In other words, if you're poor you can't afford a car, but richer people have cars, when you become richer you buy a car that has energy implications. That's true for everything, from entertainment, to travel, to how often you fly, what kind of things you buy, the size of house you have, all those things. You can, you can model based on looking at what does the leading edge do versus if you made the leading edge 10 times bigger, which is what $4 trillion would do. That would, that would be, to use a technical term, a giant sucking sound for energy and oil and natural gas 10 years out. So if you take my, my first hedge number, which the 100 million barrel per day Shortfall is actually based on the, the goofy low growth. If I add a higher growth and the failure of aspirations to get realized, I, you know, I, I, think, I think the world's going to be really hungry for an awful lot of oil for an awful long time. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mark Mills' keynote speech. We'll have another episode here in a week or two, but we really appreciate everyone tuning in to our first couple of episodes. We'll be back with a full recap from Daniel Energy Partners probably next week. Thanks a lot.